practice, if you're a very busy pharmacy with a lot of patients on a particular medication, um, then you can really struggle to get your supplies. So that that's happening now. Um, and I'm not at all clear as to whether that will get better or will get worse. So, this week we saw the release of the much-awaited Yellowhammer documents from the government. Documents which outline some of the risks involved with Britain's sudden departure from the EU, what's called a hard Brexit. The documents themselves outline that there are risks to the supplies of medicine, but they don't set out the detail of how those risks have been mitigated and what doctors and patients should do to plan for the possibility. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and to find out more, I spoke to some of our leaders in healthcare to ask what we should be doing. Firstly, and this happened just before the papers were published, I spoke to Andrew Goddard, President of the Royal College of Physicians and a consultant gastroenterologist. I saw that you wrote to the Prime Minister on the 21st of August calling for health to be at the centre of Brexit planning. Um, It seems like perhaps that hasn't been totally the case. Uh, Is that something that that worries you? I think it worries me a lot. So when we sent the letter to uh, the Prime Minister uh, asking for him to get Matt Hancock on his uh, EU exit committee, Uh, that was to try and get him to acknowledge that the NHS is really important to the NHS, uh, really important to the public, responsible for a large part of the economy, 1.5 million people working in the NHS, 400 million prescriptions a year, etc., etc. It's a big part of what we do as a country. Uh, And for the NHS not to be visibly thought about strategically when it comes to a no-deal Brexit is a real issue for us, and that's why we wanted him to formally acknowledge it. We haven't had a response to his letter. I guess that's not particularly surprising given everything that's gone on in the past seven days. No, but um, it does mean that it's hard for you to know kind of how much the NHS has featured, how how deep the planning has been around um, uh, the potential of a no-deal Brexit. And we've just seen yesterday that uh, the government are now going to have to um, publish the Yellowhammer document, which maybe sets out some of that stuff. Um, before we go into that, though, uh, what's the RCP been doing specifically when it comes to this planning? What's your what's been your role within this? We've been liaising uh, fairly carefully over the past year with the NHS, particularly NHS England, uh, with the pharmacy-related bits of that and with uh, the national clinical directors about what we might have to do in the context of a no-deal Brexit. I think I would state for the record that I think the NHS itself has done a huge amount of work in preparing for a no-deal Brexit and probably as much as you would, would expect them to be able to do given that there are in excess of 9,000 different medicines that we use and probably 7,500 of those have a touchpoint in the EU, they have looked at all of those. They've looked at the supply chain for those and tried to mitigate as well as they can. They've tried to get trusts and suppliers and pharmacies all up to speed. They've also looked at consumables, which is an even greater number by a factor of 10, 
And you know, I don't think we should criticise those within the NHS that have been tasked with trying to prepare for a no-deal Brexit. My criticism, if you could call it that, is about the honesty that government is having with the public about the potential risks of a no-deal. I think to stand up and say on primetime television that no one is going to suffer any shortages and no one is going to come to any harm is just not a guarantee that can be made by anybody who really knows the detail of it. We know that shortages happen routinely and happen all the time, and the NHS is used to dealing with those. Therefore, to say there aren't going to be any shortages would be saying, well, we're just going to magically get away from a situation we've had for the past five, ten years. Mm. And Brexit will exacerbate that. Um, th- and we can talk about the complexity in a little bit. But there where you said, you know, you are expecting a no-deal Brexit to cause harm, do you think that there will be increased morbidity, potentially mortality because of it? It depends. You know, it's very hard to say that anybody's going to die as a result of a drug shortage. But it is if somebody or a group of patients are unable to get a particular drug, you know, and they are using it for uh, a serious medical condition, it's likely they're going to come to some harm. I, you know, I think we're going to, you know, we'll be able to identify those groups of patients, and we'll be able to, because we're monitoring it, see uh, what is likely to happen. But because the supply chain is so complex and because a no-deal Brexit uh, will have such an impact on that complex supply chain, particularly if individual manufacturers, and it might just be about little manufacturers that no one's really thought of, and it might be a, it's likely to be a consumable or a medicine that nobody's really thought about the supply chain. That's where the problem's going to happen. Uh, in that case, we're just going to have to face up to that and deal with it when it comes. Um, you know, I've focused on particularly on vaccines, and that's because uh, that you know vaccines need to be kept as part of the cold chain. So that's a particularly sophisticated bit of the supply chain, uh, and also we're expecting that perhaps the flu uh, season is going to start a bit earlier. So there's going to be an even greater push and a higher demand for the vaccines at a very challenging time. And just on that, are vaccines produced in the EU? Or, you know, what's the supply chain complexity there that, that we're going to have to deal with? Yeah, so, uh, so we get our vaccine, flu vaccines from a number of suppliers, several of which come via the EU. Um, I'm not sure of the detail of exactly what happens to all the components that go into vaccine supply before they go into the EU, before they come out to us. We know that some of the uh, vaccine companies are trying to get as much across, they're planning to get as much across the channel as they can to be ready, but it's quite challenging. Mm. Brexit is this one point in time, but what it seems to have done is highlight the complexity with our supply chain and the fact that there are there are crunch points, there are, there are areas of risk. Um, do you think this is a sort of wake-up call to the way we, we have procurement of um, pharmaceuticals and everything else within the UK, within the NHS? I think there's been a naivety for some people about how we get medicines in this country uh, and the belief that we can happily produce it all ourselves uh, and that we're not reliant on other people. Most industries are now very reliant on just-in-time provision of uh, components, uh, and that's the same for medicines. And it's the, that's the most efficient thing to do, otherwise you get wastage of product. Um, what 
discussions about a no-deal Brexit have done is they've unmasked all of that. And so I think we've begun to realise how dependent we are on manufacturers, uh, on other countries, and the transport networks in order to get those medicines to us. I mean, we've seen more and more shortages as the years have gone by. The pharmaceutical industry is you know, trying to get as efficient as possible. Small companies and single manufacturers are being taken over, and that's having a big impact on medicines production and medicines availability. So in some ways, having to have to think about all of this might make us better prepared for the future as those things develop. Because I think shortages, as I say, have been getting more common over the years, and they are likely to continue to come. It's just that no deal is a bit like a tsunami wave that's going to hit that. So the message there from Andrew Goddard and the Royal College of Physicians is a little less worrying, but there are still a lot of unanswered questions about the supply of drugs. So on to the pharmacists. I'm Sandra Gidley and I'm the president of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, which is the leadership body for pharmacists in all settings. And uh, obviously, um, with what's going on with Brexit and Yellowhammer, you must have been very busy and you must have been thinking about this a lot. Um, We've just had the government release some detail on on Yellowhammer, but not a great deal of the kind of nuts and bolts uh, of what they've talked about. It's very sort of summary level at the moment. Um, Have you as a society been involved in that planning at all? We have to a certain extent, but obviously the day job is effectively done by civil servants. But we raised concerns way back, probably over a year ago, um, about the potential of increased numbers of medicine shortages, um, wanted assurances that medicines could get into the country, um, etc. So we had an early meeting with the Department of Health and actually was quite reassured that they'd already started taking this very seriously and some measures were already being thought about and developed. Um, So one of the things that people know about, for example, is the six-week stockpile of medicines. Um, What they don't really appreciate, because they probably only take one or two medicines, is that to try and achieve this for all of the medicines literally means a a line-by-line check of all the products available. Um, And if you think of the thousands of medicines that are available and the wholesalers or manufacturers, um, that's a lot of conversations and a lot of work for a lot of people. But um, we were told that the vast majority of manufacturers had signed up to the deal. We then asked the question, well, six weeks is six weeks. So is that just six weeks from exit day or is it six weeks for a continued period of time? I like don't think they've really thought weeks. about Yeah. Yes, yeah, so a rolling six weeks. I don't think they've really thought about that because obviously six weeks is, is fine as an initial buffer. But if there are ongoing problems that haven't been participated, the, um, sorry, if there are ongoing problems that haven't been anticipated then you're in a difficult situation. So they later came back and said, no, it will be for um, as as long as we need it, Um, that sort of thing. Um, Sorry, within that, six weeks, uh, I mean, it's it's not that long a a time. Um, Does that pose any 
problems for some medications with perhaps a, a, a particularly short life? Yes, it does. But the, the vast majority of medicines that people pick up from the pharmacy, it won't be a problem um, for. Where it is a really problematic area, um, things like medical radioisotopes, which um, do have a short life, and uh, they have actually been dealt with under a different supply chain and um, sort of end-to-end looking at the point of departure from Europe, how it gets into the UK, and then when it gets into the UK, how it gets where it needs to go in the time. So there's a lot of work being put into that. I'm not sure how happy the radiologists are yet, and you may want to talk to some of them um, about this area. But clearly, if somebody's in the middle of a course of um, chemotherapy or needs some urgent diagnostics and you can't get the... uh, materials you want then that is going to have an impact on patients but what I do know is that the Department of Health are working very hard they don't want patients to be inconvenienced and I think there are a lot of people's careers almost on the line they've been told you deliver this Mm. um, is the sense I'm I'm getting because there is a a real sense of urgency when you talk to uh, some people in the Department of Health. And within this um Obviously, drugs coming from Europe will be affected by this, um, but that's not the only place we get drugs from. But there are going to be these kind of backups at ports and, and things. So will it have an effect on drugs, our entire supply of drugs? Well, that's obviously the concern because it's all very well saying medicines will take priority, but if they're backed up in a queue behind all sorts of other things, you're not quite sure how that's going to work. But what we do know now is that um, if we're in a hard Brexit situation in October, we will be in a slightly better position than we were in March. And actually, that's nothing to do with us. That's more down to the French because they have um, more physical capacity um, the other side of the border for mm. dealing with the lorries. So my understanding is it's going to be easier to kind of fast track the medicines and the and, and foods and the other items that are being prioritised are automotive parts because obviously if you have everything <laughs> breaking down everywhere, you can't, and that's going to cause other problems. So that's regarded as quite important. The other um, development is apparently there's now an IT system that you can um, flag up what you're bringing into the country and it should make the process smoother. Um, But I gather that full understanding of the IT system isn't widespread among people who will have to use it yet. But um, that is being worked on, I think, as we speak. Mm. And we've heard that Michael Gove was saying we will have an amount of planes to be able to fast track things into the country as well. Yes, well, let's hope the airport uh, controllers, um, flight controllers don't go on strike. But uh, yes, there is a lot of extra capacity being um, purchased. So um, extra warehousing for the extra drugs, extra um, fridges, etc. for the cold chain items that need to be stored. And anybody with a, any manufacturer with a medicine on the, on the list um, will have the right to um, be able to access some of that. Um, extra ferry uh, capacity 
has also been looked at. But we've got a big, big problem in that the vast proportion of these goods come in the Dover Calais route mm. because it's the shortest and the the quickest and um, the cheapest. So some thought is being given as to how we can use some of the other routes as well. But obviously, there's a cost involved in that because if ferry company, sorry, if um, drug companies are sending their uh, drugs by a more expensive route, or even food manufacturers, that will obs- obviously also have an impact on um, price. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, all of those that planning seems very sort of logistical, um, mm-hmm. getting things backwards and forwards. But I suppose it's not just the physical moving of things around that are required. You know, um, when we trade internationally, there are lots of... Uh, there are tariffs, there are things like that. That means that stuff might cost more money. Um, there are sometimes quotas for things. And I don't know if that applies to, to drugs or whatever else at all. You know, there, there are complexities beyond the sort of simple moving of things around. Yes, well, I'm not an expert on um, tariffs. And that's an area that um, I think we yet to see more detail on but some drug companies already do have a quota system that's even now even within the UK and part of the problem and part of the cause of some medicine shortages is um, fluctuation of interest rates so people may recall that um, from time to time patients in the UK will receive a lot of um foreign medicines that are repackaged um and they're called parallel imports and at the moment there's a complete right for within the eu for that trade to take place so when the pound's strong small wholesalers in the um uk will import from abroad and then sell at the uk price and obviously they make money when the pound is weak the traffic is in the other direction potentially and sometimes the UK supply side suffers because some of it is being exported to other European countries. Now, whilst that practice um, will probably end, the reality is that in a global marketplace, the drug companies do want a set amount of their drug in country A, B, C, and they do try and distribute it. Um, but there will always be some sort of trade. And that can actually sometimes be the cause of a, a shortage in this country. Um, and it's frustrating, even on a day-to-day level now, put aside Brexit. Sometimes you'll get towards the end of the month, and as a community pharmacist, you won't be able to get certain drugs. And uh, you ring up and say, you've, you've had your quota for this month. Now, Nobody has a conversation with any particular pharmacy about that quota. It's just done on the law of averages. If you're a very busy pharmacy with a lot of patients on a particular medication, um, then you can really struggle to get your supplies. So that that's happening now. Um, and I'm not at all clear as to whether that will get better or will get worse. Yes. I mean, it, it doesn't seem 
wildly optimistic that that kind of thing, which requires even more planning, will have uh, will have been sorted out in the uh, in the meantime with everything else going on. Um, We've talked a little bit there about the kind of logistics of moving things around and the fact that there will be these these holdups um, at ports and, and things, and that might affect stuff. Now, even with a, a, a potential six-week backlog, there could still be shortages in drugs. And um, we've heard that in that case, it might be up to pharmacists to have to take people off medication or swap people onto an alternative um, drug for their condition. Um, is that something that you've you've talked about, that, that you've planned for? Yeah. Well, two things. You said there could, could still be shortages. There will be shortages because there are shortages now. There's nothing to do with Europe. And um, I do think it's just worth thinking about the factors for that. Um, Part of it is the global supply chain has changed. You no longer have lots of different manufacturers making raw ingredients. All of that's been consolidated. So if you have a problem with a factory, such as it burning down, this has happened um, in cases, then you have a massive um, ingredient shortage and um, that has a real impact for some time. Um, So that's one thing. We also have parts of the world that are getting richer. They are buying more medicines Mm. and that's causing a strain on the system. So the UK potentially loses out because it's a smaller purchaser. Um, If somebody else is willing to pay more and there's only so much supply, um, it will go to another country. And then you sometimes get batches that fail for no reason. And put all that together with the increasing tendency towards just-in-time manufacturing. And it's almost a perfect storm. Um, the system is creaking at the moment. And um, this is why it's really important that we do think of everything we can to help patients. So we actually, um, as a professional body, did suggest to the government that they look at some sort of substitution um, to make it easier for patients, actually, um, because situation at the moment, if you're a community pharmacist in particular, is you get a prescription, you can't get that strength or, or something of a drug, and um, quite often you will try and sort it out. Some substitution at the moment does happen. So, for example, if you're on, um, just trying to think of a suitable app, mm. it doesn't matter, I don't need to name a drug. Some substitution does happen at the moment. So if we can't get the strength of your medication and you're on 100 milligram tablets, um, sometimes the pharmacist will say, I'm happy to take two 50s and I'll sort it out with the doctor. And actually, it's a bit of pain for the, the surgery because they have to sort it out, but um, that is sorted. Patient happy, not receiving anything different. Doctor happy because the patient hasn't, um, you know, come back and asked for another appointment to get a prescription for some somebody else. So that happens already, um, and sometimes um, a branded 
if a branded medicine has been prescribed and it's not available, um, sometimes the pharmacist will ask the patient if they're happy to have a, a generic. Most are these days because uh, they understand the concept, but occasionally they're not, and there's a reason why um, they want a particular brand. So that happens as well. And, and generally, um, most community pharmacists, most GPs, they get to know each other and um, there is that element of trust. Where it gets more difficult is if a particular therapeutic substance um, is unavailable. Um, so you may, for example, want to swap one beta blocker for another. Mm. Um, now, in those cases at the moment, the pharmacist wouldn't make a decision. Um, they would refer back to the doctor. Um, occasionally they might make a suggestion um, if it, particularly if it was a skin product or something um, and there's a generic shortage they know what's available um, they, they might send a note back or ring up and say we've got A, B and C but we haven't got D that you've prescribed which one do you want mm. this one's the closest so those conversations happen um, but I think where the uh, discomfort with patients has arisen um, with a proposed scheme, which is the um, serious shortage protocol, is that it's been billed as pharmacists will willy-nilly be able to come change your drugs. And that is absolutely not what we want and not the case. So we don't see this protocol being used um, very much. But if somebody has a medicine which is unavailable, um, I think what will happen is senior doctors and pharmacists in the field um, will, at a civil service type level, make a decision and inform ministers. A lot of things have to be taken into account. So it might be, for example, that by switching everybody to another medicine you cause a shortage in that medicine so one of the things you have to look at is the availability of other alternatives and it may be that um, with polypharmacy these days you can't change everybody onto uh, medicine b um, some will have to go on to medicine b but some will have to go on to medicine c if you see what i'm saying um, so it's, it's a very very complex situation um, and particular groups of patients have got quite upset about it, particularly those. Um, and understandably, they have, patients living with epilepsy have a lot to lose if any medicine change doesn't work, they have a seizure, they can't drive. So I completely understand that. And, and, their concerns are exacerbated by the fact that there have been shortages of some um, medicines, mainly due to the repackaging of sodium valparate. So I think what has been said there is there may be substitution on the, if you have 200 milligrams of carbamazepine, say um, it's fine to substitute two by 100 milligrams. There's no reason why we would stop that. Mm. But if it comes to changing, say, a sustained release formulation of sodium valproate and there's no way you can get the same uh, dose with the alternatives available, then 
that's a decision that more people really have to be involved with. And then no patient is going to have this imposed on them either, is my understanding. But we're working with our hands tied behind our back, really, because the government had a lot of time to think about this. And we still don't really have the, the full detail yet, which is frustrating because actually health professionals on the ground, pharmacists, GPs, um, and even in hospitals, they want to understand the system, know the implications, um, and make sure they have the means of communicating it to, to the patients. So that, that has been disappointing that they just haven't got on with that mm -hmm. and uh, because having that information available would make health professionals and patients uh, more relaxed about what might happen as a result of the SSP. Yeah absolutely and it seems like um, you know now this information is out this is the time when patients are really going to start having questions for their doctors or their pharmacists about this and uh, yes Yes. And um, at the moment, we still don't know what comms there are going to be about uh, medicines generally. Um, we as a professional body have offered help. Um, there was a meeting held by the DH for the Royal Colleges. So everybody around that table was keen to offer help. I don't know how many of those offers of help have been taken up. Sandra Gidley from the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Sandra suggested I talk to the radiologist there, so I went to their Royal College. Unfortunately, they didn't have time for an interview, but they have given us a statement. They said, We know radioisotopes are being specifically considered as part of the ongoing supply mapping and planning being undertaken by the Department of Health and Social Care. And we are encouraged that officials understand how time-sensitive and vital these products are. We understand the department has recently worked with industry on an exercise to comprehensively map supply lines of radioisotopes, interrogate air freight provision and identify any shipments that could be problematic. And we're very keen to know what came of it. In our letter to government at the start of August, we asked the Prime Minister and officials to provide assurances and particular detail about customs fast-tracking of air-freighted radioisotopes, as well as the provision of qualified drivers in the event of a no-deal Brexit. We have not had an official response as yet, but have been promised an update from government in the coming weeks. So that was their statement. I also asked them about obtaining the radioisotopes we need beyond the initial chaos of a no-deal. Given that these radioisotopes are in short supply, we don't make them ourselves in the UK, and there's quite a lot of competition to obtain them. One thing that does help UK industry and the health sector plan ahead on radioisotope provision is the European Observatory on the Supply of Medical Radioisotopes, an EU group that exists to help EU governments monitor radioisotope supply issues. When we leave the EU with or without a deal, we will also leave the observatory. The Royal College of Radiologists and other health sector groups have called for the UK to have some sort of associate membership so we can still share and benefit from supply intelligence. If this can't happen, 
government and industry will need to ensure that it's able to horizon scan via other means. So that's it for this week's Brexit planning. Next time, we'll be back with more from our Talk Evidence series. Carl Hennigan and Helen MacDonald will bring you more from the world of evidence. Obviously, we're still going to be keeping you up to date with more information about healthcare after Brexit, so keep an ear out for that. You can do so by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere else you can get your podcasts from. So, until next week, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.